2020 has arrived, and with it, the 10th anniversary of the Common Core State Standards, which were released in June 2010 and quickly adopted by more than 40 states. Champions of the standards claimed that they would transform American education to the benefit of students, but the initiative went on to encounter a bumpy path in state capitals and in classrooms. A decade on, what should we make of this effort? What impact has it had on the quality of instruction and student learning? Did Common Core fail? Or 10 years in, is it still too early to say? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Michael Petrilli, president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and, of course, an executive editor of the journal. Mike is the author of one of three new essays examining the impact and legacy of the Common Core that you can find on our website at educationnext.org, and I'm very glad to have the chance to discuss that topic with him today. Mike, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. It's great to be back on the show, Marty. So let's start with the basics. Remind us what Common Core is and even more, what problems it was intended to solve. Sure. Well, let's start at the beginning. Uh, The Common Core standards are like any academic standards, basically a list of things that we want kids to know and be able to do grade by grade. Uh, What makes them different than most state standards that came before them is that they started with the assumption that we wanted to get all students to the level of being ready for college or career uh, by age 18, by the end of 12th grade. Uh, And Uh, you know, baked into that was some research showing what level of reading and writing and mathematical skills uh, students needed to be able to have to take, for example, uh, credit-bearing courses at a a public university or to be able to get a decent-paying job uh, in the economy, as it was back then. Uh, This standard was much higher than what most states were aiming for at the time, which was in most cases really just basic literacy and numeracy. And the argument that many of us who were in favor of the Common Core, and that certainly includes myself, was that we needed to raise standards and aim much higher than we had, uh, because if kids were going to be successful as they uh, got older, it wasn't going to be enough to just uh, master basic literacy and numeracy. They really did need to have these much higher level skills. And we were seeing some evidence at the time that even though we were making progress for low performing students, Uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, we really weren't doing very well at getting more kids uh, to reach those higher standards. You know, we were only getting uh, in the neighborhood of maybe a third of students truly ready uh, for what came next. And so that was the goal, was to try to set the standards higher with the hope that a whole set of actions would follow that would, as, as you say, eventually transform American education or at least have the quality of teaching and learning be set at a much higher level. So you've emphasized making the standards higher, more rigorous. But another key aspect of the project referenced in the name is that the standards would also be common across the states. How important do you think that was to the thinking? Yeah, no, that, that's right. And those of us at the Fordham Institute and many of our uh, partners and different organizations were making this case that we would get to higher standards uh, faster if we did it together. Uh, So, you know, for us, you know, there were some benefits to having common standards. For example, if you had common standards across the country, you would then have a national market for textbooks and instructional materials. And that might make it more likely that you'd get high quality materials developed rather than have the fragmented approach that we had previously. There was also hope that you might have common assessments and therefore be able to compare schools more easily across state lines. 
Uh, but I, I think, you know, I don't think I'm revising history to say that for myself and for my colleagues at Fordham, you know, our major concern really was about the quality of the standards. We had been analyzing state standards for about a decade, since the late 90s. And every time we looked at the standards in English language arts or math and other subjects, we found most of them to be terrible. Uh, that they were written by committee, that they gave into a lot of uh, different political constituencies, and again, that they weren't uh, very challenging. And our hope was that if if we did it, found a way to kind of do it together, to have governors, uh, you know, come together and hold hands, maybe we could change the political dynamics uh, and create some standards that really did set the bar high, uh, rather than to give into these other pressures that were resulting in, in lackluster standards before. Now, as I mentioned at the top, we're revisiting the issue of the Common Core in part because we've reached its 10th anniversary. The standards were finalized in June 2010, and by August, 37 states had signed on. That number eventually grew to 46, and I believe that as of early 2014, a point we might call peak Common Core, 42 mm -hmm. of those states had committed to participating in one of the two testing consortia that had receive federal funding to develop Common Core aligned tests. Where do things stand in terms of participation now? How, to what extent does the Common Core yeah. still exist? Well, it definitely still exists. And it, you know, it's, it's a little bit hard to count how many states still do the Common Core because so many states deny that they use the Common Core. When there was a big political backlash to the standards back in 2013 and 2014, uh, especially from the right, and we can talk more about that backlash if you'd like, uh, there were a number of states that at the very least rebranded the standards. You know, so in Ohio, for example, where uh, we do a lot of work at Fordham, uh, you know, they, they became uh, the Ohio Standards of Learning instead of the Common Core, uh, but that was the only change that was made. Uh, other states had uh, similar rebranding efforts. Some other places uh, made some more significant changes. They, they uh, took some standards out, added some other things in, and a few states really went through a process of repealing and replacing the Common Core. Uh, but, you know, if you go in and you really look at the language that's in those standards in most states, I would say that we still have uh, certainly a majority of states that are still doing the Common Core. I think it's well into the 30s, probably the high 30s that have the Common Core or something still much like it. Now, on the testing front, it's very different. We see very few states that have maintain participation in, in one of those federally funded consortia. The PARC consortia, in fact, is basically defunct. Uh, and there are, uh, you know, only now a handful of states still giving something that is basically the PARC exam. Although, uh, you know, maybe uh, uh, another five states are using a test that uses a lot of the old PARC questions. Uh, for Smarter Balance, it's a little bit of a better story. I think we're still at about 10 states that use that test, including the mega state of California. But there's no doubt that we are back to a situation where most states are doing their own, going their own way when it comes to their tests. Now, your essay is part of a forum, along with pieces by Morgan Polikoff and Tom Loveless. And one point on which you all agree is that there's very little evidence of tangible improvements in teaching and learning that we can attribute to the Common Core at this stage. What does that evidence look like? Yeah, no, that, that's true, Marty. And, and look, as I said in the piece, I was a Common Core booster. I was certainly out there advocating for states to keep the standards back during those Common Core wars of 2013 and 2014. And I was certainly hopeful that by now, 10 years later, we would have seen uh, some measurable Im improvements in student achievement. 
And as your listeners know, instead, uh, you know, the 2010s were really a lost decade of for student achievement with flat scores. In some cases, scores that even went down uh, for the lowest performing kids. So very disappointing. Um, you know, but as always, we have to be careful about correlation versus causation. Uh, and, you know, I would certainly point to the fact that you saw the, these basic trends of stagnation or decline for both common core states and non-common core states. Some studies out there that uh, that the folks I debated in the forum, Tom Loveless and Morgan Polakoff, do point to, did try to look at variation by state on NAEP and see what that looks like depending on their implementation of the Common Core. Uh, in in some cases, they, for example, compared states that uh, whose standards changed a lot from pre-Common Core to the Common Core to those uh, whose standards didn't change very much. Uh, in my opinion, that's just not a great way to think about it. I think the real way to look at it is to ask where in which states have we seen uh, really energetic implementation, meaning uh, adopting curriculum that is aligned to the Common Core, a lot of effort to train teachers in that curriculum uh, versus those where we really haven't seen much implementation at all. Those studies, to my knowledge, don't exist uh, and and would have problems, you know, as as all studies that are trying to make conclusions based on a small set of 50 states would would struggle to do. But, you know, that said, as, as I concede in the piece, there is not much evidence, uh, certainly on the positive side of the ledger, that states uh, that have embraced the Common Core, say like Louisiana, have shown a strong achievement over this decade. And that's a disappointment. So you all agree on what the evidence shows, more or less, but the difference in your perspective comes from the word yet you're still hopeful that the Common Core effort will ultimately bear fruit. Why? Isn't yeah. that just moving I, the goalposts? I, or? Yeah, well, sure. And, and look, again, as I admit, I certainly didn't think it was going to take 10 years to show some achievement gains. But now with hindsight, uh, I have made the case that, look, we were naive to think that it was going to go so fast. And here's why. First of all, uh, you know, it has taken us a long time to build out the Common Core infrastructure. It wasn't until 2015 that we had the common assessments in place. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until just the last few years, really, that we've had Common Core aligned curriculum at scale uh, out there that are starting to get adopted at anything like scale by states and districts. Now, partly that's because the Great Recession in the early 2000s created this horrible situation for schools that, among other things, meant they didn't have money to buy new textbooks and new curriculum. Uh, and that's something that we really, uh, I think, down, did, you know, downplayed and didn't make a big enough deal about at the time. Uh, so it's only in recent years that that's happened. We only in, in just recent years, thanks to the Every Student Succeeds Act, have new accountability systems that are recalibrated to focus on helping all kids make progress over time, not just focus on the lowest performing kids. So you know, some of these shifts that uh, are part of the Common Core effort are still quite new. Uh, and then, look, I think we just have to acknowledge that the project here of actually, uh, you know, developing curriculum aligned to the standards, getting uh, schools to adopt the curriculum, getting teachers trained on the curriculum, uh, and changing the way they teach uh, in the classroom, that is hard and it takes time. So, uh, you know, my argument is that in most places, we're still quite early. Now, does that mean I, I, I'm completely confident that eventually we're going to see achievement gains? No, I mean, it depends what we do. It depends on what states do and what districts do. They still have to actually make all those steps that I just referenced. And we know that there's still a vast majority of schools 
where they have not adopted Common Core line curriculum, where teachers still report not having instructional materials aligned to the standards 10 years later. So, you know, this, this is certainly not self-implementing. Nothing here is inevitable. Uh, if we're going to get better outcomes going forward, then we need to see more action. But I, I am hopeful that states like Louisiana, like Mississippi, uh, places like Washington, D.C., that have taken implementation more seriously uh, will start to show more progress going forward. It will also help as the Great Recession recedes uh, from our memory as we have a, a crop of students who come through the system who were not so negatively impacted by that uh, financial calamity. And as your comments just suggested, this isn't merely an academic discussion. Which lesson we draw about Common Core really matters. And to illustrate that, I want to bring out one salient disagreement within the forum as an example. Your essay mentions the curriculum evaluation website, edreports.org, noting that its ratings give the hopeful sign that the quality of instructional materials on the market has been improving in recent years. Tom Loveless, who thinks we need to concede that Common Core has failed, he also mentions Ed Reports, but he does so to criticize the fact that its very first screen when it comes to rating curricula is not whether there's evidence of its effectiveness, but whether it's aligned to Common Core. So he complains yeah. that Math in Focus, a curriculum based on Singapore's approach to math instruction, fails the Ed Reports review, despite the fact that it's a rare example of a curriculum with rigorous evidence of efficacy. Yeah. Isn't that a problem? Uh, or, you know, is the potential benefit of coherence enough to justify actually uh, incorporating that into our evaluation of what's available? Right. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that's that particular point is legitimate. And I don't know enough about how they evaluated Singapore math to know, you know, why it, it didn't make it through that screen. I, you know, I think, look, Ed Reports is very clear about what it's trying to do. Uh, unlike, say, the What Works Clearinghouse, which is already looking for, in this case, math programs that have evidence of effectiveness, this is more about uh, whether programs are aligned to these new standards. Now, given that the standards are new or now new-ish, and that many of the materials that have been produced are now brand new, it's too early to test them in terms of their effectiveness and boosting academic achievement. Eventually, yeah, we absolutely want to get to that. But, uh, but you can still ask this question about whether they are uh, aligned. And what can that look? And what that can mean is, you know, are the concepts in the, in, that are supposed to be taught in the third grade actually showing up in the third grade? Uh, you know, is the level of intellectual rigor and demand that's being placed on students where it's supposed to be or maybe not low enough, uh, you know, compared? And, and the, what, what Ed Reports has really shown is that most of the mainline publishers, Okay, not these niche publishers like the Singapore Math, but the ones, you know, that really are getting the major textbook adoptions around the country. You know, most of them slapped the word Common Core on their materials right away. And sure enough, they were not at all aligned to the Common Core. So Ed Reports has helped to expose that. Over time, those textbook publishers have gotten better at producing materials that are, in fact, aligned. And that should help. We've also had some upstarts, some nonprofits and others who have developed great new materials. And that should help, too. So if we're willing to maintain hope, if we think the right thing to do is to stay the course with the theory of action behind Common Core, what does that entail? What comes next for policymakers? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I'd push back on that question a little bit. You say, what comes next for policymakers? I think in this case, most of the action is really in the world of practitioners. 
Now, I think what policymakers can do is something that can be hard for policymakers to do, which is to do nothing, <laughs> to not come out with a brand new reform, to not, uh, you know, change horses in midstream, you know, to basically stay the course, to keep their standards, uh, you know, in place. Certainly, if, if it's time for them to do a review of the standards that they have in place, uh, to look to make tweaks, but not to throw them all out again, you know, to, to acknowledge that it's still early. And so what we want to do is to finish what we started. Uh, they can also provide, you know, some resources and some guidance, but the real action has got to be uh, in the classroom and with folks who are closer to the classroom. And look, that means making good decisions around textbook adoptions and curriculum implementation. I know where my kids go to school just last year, they, they adopted new curriculum uh, that were meant to be aligned to the Common Core. And so, you know, it's, it, it, some of those curriculum were only developed a few years ago, and, and it's now only now that it's time for them. It was sort of on their timeline to do a review and to do a new adoption, and they've got the money, and so here we go. You know, and then it's all the things that it takes that we know from years of research to actually implement a new curriculum or any program with fidelity. Right. It's about getting the teachers bought in. It's about giving them tons of support and time to work together and and a chance to really, uh, you know, be be thoughtful and reflective on their practice. And then, you know, when you get through all of that, when you ask places, let's say, high performing charter schools or some places like Louisiana that have really been working on this hard and you say, OK, how's it going? Uh, what you find out is it's it's hard. There's they're struggling with the fact that the standards are much higher. And therefore, we've defined most kids now as being off track, as being below grade level. And so teachers are now struggling with how do I, what do I do when I look out in a classroom full of kids who are at least a grade, maybe two, three grade levels below grade level, and I'm trying to teach them to high standards. And that's where the, the conversation is. Uh, but it's really a, a conversation about practice. It's now about how do we actually get this job done uh, we need to think differently about schools and do we technology and how we spend our time or how much time, all the same stuff. I mean, it's everything. Uh, but that's the that's the real conversation. And in my mind, that is a much better conversation than a conversation that says, well, we haven't seen results yet. So let's what go back to the old standards or uh, or let's just give up or let's just uh, talk about something completely different. Like let's blow up school boards. I, I think, you know, this is where. We need to just stick with it. My guest today has been Michael Petrilli, president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and executive editor of Education Next. You can find his essay, Stay the Course on National Standards, online at educationnext.org. Mike, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you, Marty. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.